Let's pray. Oh Lord, I, I want to thank you for the, 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 the weeks that we have had to reflect upon your great work in our lives. Lord, as we, as we now come to sort of the, the last sola of the Protestant Reformation, really the last sola of Scripture, we just thank you, God, that you paint for us such a, a beautiful picture of who you are and what you are doing. But Lord, we are, are people that are tired and weary. Lord, we don't always feel well. It's sometimes hard to listen and to hear the things that you say. But we pray that your spirit would be at work in a mighty and a powerful way in our lives. Lord, for me to be able to faithfully bring your word before your people, but Lord, also for us as your people to hear and to receive that word by faith. And Lord, that that word would take root in our hearts and give expression this week, O oh Lord. Um, to walk with you and to, to not only be obedient to you, but Lord, may that word burn a hole in our heart that we have to share it with other people as well. Lord, may we love you, love you, love you so much more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Reformation and its theology has been described as the rediscovery of the greatness and the glory and the magnitude and the majesty of God in a world and in a church that is thoroughly man-centered in its approach to God. The Reformation um, called a, a halt to all that which drew attention to people and instead said that God is great and God is to be glorified. The sovereign God of the scriptures who made the heavens and the earth is the one that's to be exalted and to be glorified. And I think that, you know, as we think about the church in that day, that's very true. But even as we think about the church in our day, we have in many ways returned to sort of that uh, uh, way of thinking that's very man-centered and in churches, and, and oftentimes we don't do justice to who God is. And so I think in many ways that what's wrong within the church today is that in many respects the church has lost sight of the majesty and the greatness of God. And I think we got to ask ourselves, is that true in us? You know, how great is God in our lives you know, is there a sense in which we've sort of settled into our faith or is there a sense in which we are growing in our relationship with the Lord and seeing him new every morning and loving him? And so I just want us to think about these things together about who God is and particularly as we look at this passage to see a vision of the incom incomprehensible God, a vision of an incomprehensible God. I want us to see also a vision of a sovereign God and a vision of a glorious God. So an incomprehensible God, a sovereign God, and a glorious God. As we look at Paul's words from Romans chapter 11. And today I want to just begin with verses 33 as Paul 
begins to ponder the incomprehensibleness of God. He said, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable. Listen to these words. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. You know, the Apostle Paul is saying that there is a depth here to God. You know, he's been expounding this wonderful theology. He's been expounding the revelation of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's been pontificating on the immensities of the infinities of of faith. So in one sense, he's been plummeting these depths and he has as it were, gone into the deepest recesses of the mind and the will of God as God has revealed that to him. And so, you know, like Augustine commenting on the doctrine of God, it's as though the Apostle Paul is saying here, I see the depths, but I can't see the bottom. You know, it's still God is that much greater and that much deeper than I can imagine. Now, I I remember when I was younger, I would go fishing with my father And he seemed to always know where these places were to go fishing that were very difficult to get to. And so he had a four by four pickup truck and we would have the boat in the back of the in the bed of the pickup truck. And we would drive as far as you could drive with a four wheel drive until you couldn't drive any further. And then we had to pull the boat out of the back and trudge through the mud and the the branches and everything. And we'd walk a ways and then all of a sudden there'd be a lake. And, you know, of course, it was good fishing because nobody could get back there, you know, but we put the boat in and we'd go out. And it was just interesting. I remember thinking as a kid, wow, you can you can see, you know, the different layers of the lake and it just goes down and down and down and down. And, you know, I often wondered how deep this was. And sometimes I'd ask my dad and he'd say, you know, it's a it's a quarter of a mile deep or or whatever it was. And it just, uh, you know, it just amazed me, you know, at just how far down it went. Well, that lake had an end to it, but God is immeasurable. He is beyond telling about. And as Paul is sort of pondering the incomprehensibility of God, our, our, un, our inability to really understand the fullness of who God is, he talks about several things. First of all, he talks about God's knowledge. He said, oh, the depths of the riches of the knowledge of God. You know, God knows Everything. He knows himself. He knows the intricacies of his own being. There's no secret recesses of the the mind of God that that he does not know. He knows himself perfectly. He has a perfect uh, integrated knowledge of himself and knows all that is outside of himself as well. He knows the entirety of creation. And I'm not just talking about the creation that we see on this earth, but I'm talking about in space and other galaxies. There is no fact, no detail that is unknown to God. He knows the future as well as the past and the present. He knows those things that are yet to come and the future will never catch him by surprise because of his infinite. He knows everything. Now, I know we know that. But stop and think about that, because we cannot even say that about ourselves. We don't even know ourselves well. You know, the Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You know, so we don't even see our own selves. You know, the New Testament talks about how 
You know, we will notice the splinter in somebody else's eye and we'll miss the log in our own eye. You know, we don't always see the condition of our own heart. But God knows himself perfectly and he knows all of creation. Not only do we see the knowledge of God, but also the wisdom of God. He goes, oh, the depths both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And you understand the difference between wisdom and knowledge. It's one thing to, to know something, but to be wise, you need to know how to use that knowledge to achieve a good end. And God has perfect wisdom. He knows how to achieve all the purposes, so to bring good out of every situation. I mean, imagine how complicated it would be to trace all the details of history in order to sure that, ensure that you were here today in the particular seat that you're sitting in, in, in this particular building. You know, just imagine that. You know, any of you that, that like science fiction, you know, and watch Star Trek or, you know, any of these other shows, sometimes one of the things they like to play with is time, you know, and, and just consequences of decisions. And, and, you know, you get a little bit of a feel for, wow, if I change this, then it impacts this over here and this never happened and all of that. But just imagine how great our God must be that he is sovereign and in control of all of these things and in perfect wisdom, and in perfect knowledge. Not only that, but we see that he is perfect in his judgments as well. Now, when we speak of, of the judgments of God, um, what Paul's doing here is he's using sort of a judicial term. Uh, judgments were normally judicial uh, decisions that were passed down. A judge makes a judgment of a case and the Apostle Paul is saying that when he looks at the judgments of God and the ones that he has handed down, he said, my mind is boggled at the wisdom and the justice and even of the mercy of God's judgments. But then he also says that about God's ways as well. He says that God's ways are not our ways. God's providence, the unfolding of God's will and the details of our lives um, is perfect. So when Paul speaks of the ways of God, he's speaking of the way in which God deals with men in his providence. So Paul in this verse is praising God because of the infinite wisdom and the knowledge he displays in his judgments and in his dealings with men. And in light of this plan of salvation, which he's been revealing for 11 chapters, you know, and which he has explained to a certain extent, the, the Apostle Paul just marvels and prays to see how God has unfolded his plan. And God's ways and his will still unfolds in details and in the intricacies of even our individual lives. And how this plan oftentimes impinges upon us, there are depths to the way that God interacts with each and every one of us in our lives even today. Depths which sometimes cause us to cry out to God from time to time to explain what it is that he's doing. Have you ever felt that way? Lord, what are you doing? As you look at the circumstances of your lives, you know that God is at work and you don't always understand that. And so you cry out to him because the intricacies, the, 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 the details of that plan are so complex to us that, that they're beyond our understanding. Our understanding and sometimes it tempts us to, to doubt. Sometimes we doubt whether he knows what he's doing. And that's when Paul comes back to that phrase, oh, the depths 
of the knowledge and the wisdom of God. Do we understand that? You know, it's no wonder that we don't understand always the way of God in our lives because he is so deep, because the details are so precise. There's such a vastness to the ways of God. And so the Apostle Paul here says, as he scans the purposes of God, as it unfolds in the revelation of the gospel, that God is beyond our understanding and that there's a sense in which God is incomprehensible to us. And for those who have studied the scriptures and have come to the doctrines of grace, I don't know about you, but when I came to the doctrines of grace and I I began to see scriptures with God as the focus, it answered a whole lot of questions in my life. I was like, oh, this makes so much more sense. But I just want to say that our confidence is not to be in the Reformed faith. Our confidence is in the fact that our God is great. Amen? That our God is the one who has all the answers. That he has revealed to us that's which we need to know. You know, and sometimes he is, uh, there are things that he has chosen not to reveal to us. And yet we can still praise him even for those things. I had a, a friend one time who was a, an elder in a church. And I was, rest, I was a young pastor and I was wrestling with those things that I didn't know about God. And he said, Rick... He said, it ought to be a comfort to you that you don't know everything about God. He said, if you could explain everything about God, he goes, then that's a puny little God. You know, he said, just the fact that God is so immense and so great and so beyond our comprehension, he goes, that's what causes us to come on Sundays and to worship and to praise him. That is what gives us the confidence to put our trust and our lives in his hands and not just our lives, but the lives of our family, our children and those that we love, knowing that that he is a great God. You know, I think that uh, another great practical lesson that we learn in this is that Paul starts off these verses of praising God because of his plan of redemption. And he reminds us of the greatness of our God, the bigness of our God. And and the, the bigness of our God, I think, sometimes helps put into perspective the problems that we have in our lives. And sometimes we come to the scriptures as we're having some difficulty and And we're reading the scriptures and we're just looking for the answers. Lord, what should I do about this? And God, I'm encountering this. And and what should I do? And we want God to give us the answers. And there's nothing wrong with that. And and that's, that's good. But you know, sometimes we need to go to the scriptures and just get lost in the bigness of the plan of which we are a part of by God's grace. We just need to see God for who he is. And sometimes we walk away from the scriptures and we don't have the answers. But it's okay because we understand our God. And sometimes we just need to be lost in the wonder and the love and the praise of the triune God. And we need to remember that one of the things that God uh, intends by revealing himself in this way and showing us the scripture is that it confronts the pride of humanity that's been around since Adam, right? 
You know, we just we have such an attitude that, you know, God ought to be accountable to us and he ought to explain everything to us. But yet God oftentimes brings us to the end of ourselves that we might be like Paul and say, oh, the depths of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And that's why he goes on in the next verse in verse 34 and he says, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? You know, who has known the mind of the Lord who has been his counselor? And the Apostle Paul is saying that there are that there are issues and aspects of the reality of the mind of God that we as creatures cannot understand and we can never, never fathom. And although we give thanks to God for which he has revealed the things to us, for that which he has disclosed in the scripture, even some of those things are hard for us to understand. And so we should realize only too well this morning that there is way more to God than maybe what we realize. More to his being, more to his attributes, more to his character and the, and the ways of God than you and I can ever understand. And so Paul confronts our pride of thinking so highly of ourselves. I mean, is it not true? I mean, we hate to admit this, right? We really hate to admit this, but sometimes we do want to hold God accountable. We think we can be his counselor. Lord, this is really what you ought to do. God, this is going on in my life. Really, shouldn't you do this? And we sort of have that attitude, but Paul wants us to see who are we to counsel God. I mean, it reminds us of the words of Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children, Moses said. So there is a sense in which there are those parts of God that we cannot understand. And so how can we give him counsel because we don't know all these things? And then the third thing that we see is a vision of a sovereign God. So God is not only incomprehensible, but he is also sovereign. Look at verse 35. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Now, what Paul is doing there is he's actually quoting the book of Job. Job 41, verse 11. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Now, do you understand why Paul puts that verse, why he's quoting that verse here? You know, this verse in the book of Job is really at the conclusion of the book of Job. And if you remember, uh, Job has been asking for an explanation from God as to why the things in his life have been happening. You know, sort of one sense, Job is sort of, you know, you know, I'm holding you accountable, Lord. Why? I don't deserve these things. Why are these things? Why are these things happening? And what has God done? He's been silent. He hasn't said anything. And so Job, Job has come before God and demanded that God give him an explanation as though God owes him that explanation. And one of the things that Job learns at the end of his trial, in fact, is that God owes him nothing. God says, who are you, man? Where were you when I created these things? And so Paul quotes this verse from this chapter um, from the book of Job to emphasize the sovereignty of God. It is perhaps all the more 
pertinent that this verse should be cited here, especially after the Apostle Paul has been talking about the things he's been talking about in Romans 9 and 10 and 11, right? And in, in, in chapter 9, in verse 13, God has said, Jacob I love and Esau I have hated. And so he sort of proclaims the stark reality of the Almighty God emphasizing, you know, God's doctrine of election and predestination. And God said that he can give his administrative grace. He can give his grace to whom he chooses to give it. So in his sovereignty, God reveals his purpose and says that there is a purpose of God according to the election of grace and that there is a purpose of God which leads to reprobation. And that, you know, but as we hear that, we might be tempted to say, that's not fair. God can't choose some and not choose other. And God says, I am God and I can do whatever I want. And you see now why the Apostle Paul is quoting from the book of Job, because fairness has nothing to do with it. You know, there is none righteous. There is not one for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And not one of us has given to God that he might repay us. So we see here Paul emphasizing the sheer sovereignty of God in the administration of grace. But, you know, for us this morning, it may not be the doctrines of election and reprobation that causes us, in fact, to question the sovereignty of God. It may be in what God is doing in acts of providence. It may be what God is doing in your lives. Are there ways you are wrestling with God's providence in your life? Are there circumstances that you know that God is doing in your life, but you are struggling to accept from the hand of God? That's not uncommon. We must remember, though, that there are depths to the knowledge and the wisdom of God. Our, our spiritual eyes, just like with me as a kid, you know, I would look down at the depths of that lake and I would see different colors and the different layers of the lake. And as much as I wanted to see the bottom, I couldn't see the bottom. And in the same way, sometimes our spiritual eyes are like that. We can only see so far. But God is beyond our comprehension. And then third, we see a vision of a glorious God. In verse 36, he said, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You see, he's speaking about to the glory of God alone. And what is it that the apostle has been drawn to as he's pulled together the threads of all that God has been revealing in creation and providence in unfolding of the revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Really, he is saying that all things were created to give glory to God, to the glory of God, because through him and to him, uh, it's, uh, because from him and through him and to him are all things. Now, when he says from him, he created all things. Everything that is made, everything that exists is because God has brought it into being. And he made it ex nihilo, out of nothing. Um, it, and so it is God who is the source of that which is. But he not only is the source of everything, but God is through him that all things were made. The God of Scripture is not the God of the deist who, having created all of his creation, then steps back and says, OK, you're on your own. 
But God continues to sustain his creation, is intimately involved. Matthew 6 talks about how not even a sparrow falls. Now, what is a sparrow worth to us? Nothing. But God is so careful in his creation that even that which we would consider insignificant, God knows that it happens because he is the one, he is the agent um, that holds all things together. And not only that, it says, and to him are all things. Not only did God create all things that, that is, but he's, and sustains it, but he is the goal of all creation and salvation. And that goal is to give glory to God, to worship him. Um, listen to the words of Psalm 19. Psalm 19, just the first six verses, the whole psalm is great. But as we think about the creation that God made, why he made that, this is what he tells us. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So in other words, God created all of creation to declare his glory and to proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom and leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. So God has created all things that it might proclaim his glory. But God also saved us that we might proclaim his glory as well. Look, if you would, to Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians chapter one. And, and in this chapter, as I said last week, you know, we're talking about the spiritual blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. We're seeing the work of the, the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in terms of the work of salvation. And, and look at, at how he talks about how that salvation is to lead to, to the praise of the glory of God. Look at verse six. He says to the he's just talked about God's election as father in verses four and five. And then he says to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And then down in verse 13, he said, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be what? To the praise of of his glory. And then he talks about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And in verse 14, he said, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now turn one chapter over to Ephesians chapter two and verse seven. We didn't really touch this last week. We looked at verses one through 10, but this part I left till this week. You know, uh, Paul's been talking about how we were dead in our sins and there was nothing that we could do to have salvation. But then you see those great words in verse five, but God, but God, God intervened on our behalf and he gave us newness of life. And then in verse seven, he tells us the reason why he gave us that newness of life. He said, so that, that implies reason, okay, or purpose, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us who are in Christ Jesus. You see, we are a living picture of God's grace. God has provided salvation for his people to demonstrate who he is. He saved us for his glory. 
Now, I don't know about you guys and how much you like art and paintings and stuff like that. But, you know, I, and, and I'm no great connoisseur of art. I'll just say that. But I like what I like and I don't like what I don't like, I guess. And so uh, that doesn't sound like much of a professional, I know. But if I go up to a painting and I see that painting and I'm captured by that, I just go, wow, look at that painting. Isn't that neat? You know, but it's it's I'll talk about the painting just for a little while. But eventually that gives way to talking about the artist. You go, wow, that's such a beautiful painting. And then you go, you know, look at how the person who painted this cast that shadow. Isn't that neat how they use those strokes, you know, to convey that? Or look at the perspective of that painting. That's an interesting perspective that the artist drew. And you just can't help but talk about the artist if you're going to appreciate the painting. And that's what we have here in Ephesians chapter two. You know, we see that, you know, we're going to look across heaven and there's going to be multitudes from every tribe, every nation in heaven. And people are going to say, wow, look at that. Isn't that amazing? But it's not going to be very long before we go from talking about, you know, that great picture of all these nations that are worshiping God to talking about why they're there and how they got there. And we're going to see that really it points back to our God. You know, the Reformation refocused the church's gaze upon God alone for his glory alone. And we today need that same thing. I just want to ask you, brothers and sisters, is that the gaze of your life? Is that the focus of what you're looking at? Are those the lenses through which you are viewing your life circumstances and the things that you are encountering at this time? That you see the depths of the knowledge and the wisdom of God, that you recognize that there's no one who can give him counsel? Are you recognizing that he is the source and the sustainer and the goal of everything that there is? And that's why Paul then uh, takes us back to Romans 12.1. So therefore, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God because of what he has done and who he is. And that's the privilege that we get to be as believers. Oh, may God continue to work in our midst as a church, that our gaze may be even more firmly fixed upon him every day, and that it may free our hearts to worship and to praise him as the Apostle Paul did. Please bow with me for a time of silence, if you would. Lord, we thank you so much that we could be here this day and to hear your word. Please direct our focus upon you. Lord, may you consume our thoughts. Lord, may the the things of this world seem as temporary as they really are. Lord, may our affections and our love Our hearts, our wills be set upon you and doing your will. May you be the delight of our hearts. God, may you truly be our vision. 
We thank you and pray these things in your name. Amen.